0: Hello, my name is Danielle DeVoe, and you are listening to Unsettling Trends. In this series, I'm going to explore some of the new shifts or ongoing trends that I have observed in my everyday world, and consider the ways that these are unsettling for good and for bad. In this first episode, I catch up with someone who really knows the math, a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo, to find out what trends really are, how are they used statistically and rhetorically, and are they more dangerous than good? Later on, I chat with four undergraduates, also from the University of Waterloo, to try to understand how digital technologies and big data have made their relationships to knowledge and information different from what I experienced over two decades ago when I was an undergraduate student. Really, I want to get to the bottom of my burning question, how come my students aren't writing notes during my classes anymore? Thanks for joining me this week. Let's get straight to my feature interview. This is a conversation that I had with my friend and colleague and India Sen way back in the summer of 2020, when we were really trying to get to grips with how to make sense of all those unsettling pandemic cr- trends we were watching on the news every night. Dr. Sen is a professor of economics at the University of Waterloo, as well as the director of the Masters of Public Service program. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Oh, my pleasure. So the theme of this radio show is unsettling trends. And I have to say in 2020, over the course of 2020, I have probably seen more trend lines Than in the entire rest of my life. It was a big trends year. There's always a graph on every nightly news, and it always has this big scary trend line shooting up into the sky. But I think, you know, as a member of the public who doesn't have significant statistical background in terms of my training, these trends can be misleading to people because they look kind of big and intimidating and scary. So can you provide a little bit of context? You know, how do we define a trend? How do we know when something is a trend? And What is it being used to explain to people? What is the explanatory power of understanding what a trend is?
1: What I think a trend is, and this is just from my perspective. So the perspective which I like to bring is my training as a teacher and a researcher and how I explain to my students and many of my, of our students have, uh, No prior training in statistics before they enter the master public service program. Adopting that type of strategy is is useful because we can speak in general terms. And I think it's important to speak in general terms because of, as you alluded to, the trends which we see in society today. What my understanding of a trend or how I define a trend is a dominant pattern in data, something which is persistent and robust and stable. I think that's the easiest way to define a trend in, in my opinion. So the way you try to detect a trend is that you look at trends over time. I mean, that's how I start my research. So for example, when you look at, say, climate change, or you look at the consumption of fake news by society, is that a trend? So let's start off with climate change. Climate change is more or less easy in the sense that you have temperature variables. And that's not the only measure of climate change, obviously, but it's an easy way to start when you look at global warming. So what you do is that you look at trends over time and try to understand if the planet is heating up. And it's interesting because if you stop a trend at a certain place, you can get a skewed answer. It can fit what you want to believe. My point being is that when you're looking at a trend, the lesson out there is that the first step is to define a variable which can objectively measure what you're interested in. And then what you have to do, you have to look at the trend over a certain length of time. And you can't really put the trend in terms of a specific time length. Uh, When you think of global warming, obviously you're looking at centuries. On the other hand, when you look at COVID cases, it's been on the daily case for the past year. There are some nuances there. There's no kind of textbook you can use. But you have to use your common sense in terms of what is an appropriate time period to make sure you get the whole big picture and unbiased perspective. And I think that's what our training is, whether we're a social scientist or a humanist, that when we look at information, it has to be the sample has to be such that it's not skewed to a particular outcome, it is objective. You start off with a trend. So we talked about defining it in terms of a specific variable. And let's switch to the example of the consumption of fake news. What you'd want is data. If you had the golden data set, it would be looking at the amount of hours of news consumed. And it can be from any platform. It can be from TV. It can be from the internet. It can be from your phone. But then if there is some objective way then to say that of all this content, uh, which content is clearly fake news? Imagine you could do that. So if you did that, what you do is that you look at not only the proportion of people who are consuming a bit of fake news over time, but then how much each person consumes the magnitude of consumption. So if, for example, you spend two hours a day on the internet, when you started off eight years ago, 10 years ago, you see that people, for entertainment purposes, or maybe they found it appealing for whatever reason, they spend 10 minutes out of two hours. But over 10 years, if they're still consuming two hours, or even if they're consuming four hours now, how much of the four hours is towards fake news? What you have to do is that you have to control for other factors. When you think of fake news, it has to be a proportion because people just be consuming overall news content more. So you have to control for that. So my point with that example is to emphasize that when you try to understand what's going on, you should never restrict your analysis to the trend of a single variable. What you need to do is you need to kind of dive deeper in and understand that this trend which you see could be because of a factor you believe to be true. On the other hand, it could be due to something else which you don't observe. And therefore, you have to do your best to try to control for other factors before you go on to deriving any inference.
0: Yeah, so and I think the this tension that you're touching on, and I think it gets back to that, whether you're a social scientist or a humanist, there is something really important about understanding how trends are being used. And you've really illustrated well that there's methodological rigor to how you use these things. And it can't just be looking at one data set. And this was you know, we saw this in the COVID numbers, where you just see these raw numbers and see the spike going up. But then when it's broken down to per 100,000, you know, that's actually the important number, because that allows you to compare across jurisdictions and over time in a really systematic way. And I think there's sort of another issue with trends and the power of trends in terms of how the public feels about them. So on the one side, there's the mathematical trick, if you can strategically pick which thing you're looking, at and you can skew what the trend is telling people in that way. But there's also just the rhetorical power of calling something a trend. So I think a lot of times when we talk about trends publicly or in the media, we don't necessarily have the mathematics to back up that it is, in fact, a trend. People are just sort of using the word trend rhetorically to convince people of something or maybe to frighten them. And and we see that a lot with so-called unsettling trends, where we pick something that we think is scary or problematic, and we call it a trend, and we don't need to prove that it's a trend in some way. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the rhetorical power of calling something a trend, and some of the ways that it can be a tricky concept when it's being used publicly to convince people of things?
1: Sure. I think to your point and to your question, what is extremely disturbing for me is to see how trends are being misused in public discourse. And that's because I won't necessarily blame the exponents. i kind of put the blame at the footstep of society that we're at a point where we seem to have such limited attention span and we don't think and we don't challenge and we don't think critically. And all it takes for something to be a fact and to believe in it is a tweet. Like there's so many people who post a tweet with a trend in it, then their followers blindly accept it and retweet it. And then it becomes a self-perpetuating belief and it becomes unshakable. So a part of it, there are a lot of factors which are pretty complex in their interplay. One is because communicating these messages through social media is so easy. It's so easy. And in a sense, it's seductive because you could get so many people along to your point of view. But they can also, you can do that because there seems to be so many, so much of the population which has, doesn't have a clear understanding, or maybe they just don't want to challenge it because there's so many studies which people would show that people just want to embrace what they believe in. So, you latch on to this. Maybe even in your deep down, you know it's not enough that type of research. There should be more questions being asked. What's going on behind that trend? What are other correlated factors? There's something which is stopping that. And so, for me, that's something which I wrestle with. I, I find it deeply disturbing. Like many other researchers, I'm at, I'm at a loss what the next step should be, if, the, if there could be any next steps.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, humans get by by taking cognitive shortcuts, we need categories to simplify things. And that's sort of our, our easy way to not have to remember everything to be able to make the best decision in a, you know, alliance a coming towards you, what do you do, you know, you have to make a quick decision based upon assumptions that you have, and we need categories to help us figure that out. And, and trends to a certain extent are one of those shortcuts where we don't need to know the math, we just need to have the trend line in our head. And then that allows us to kind of jump to a conclusion without having to do any of the intellectual work to get to that conclusion. So I think humans do this all the time and trends are a really convenient way to do it and really prevalent right now. And so I think this is what I think is really interesting about trends is that humans haven't always had a statistical concept called a trend to rely on. So do you have a sense of the history of trends? And when did economists start talking in terms of trends? And, and you know, what is it that has allowed it to really become this go-to metric for any issue that that is important today? It's that's
1: a good, great question. It's it's all a function of data and how easy data are collected and made available. So I would say looking at trends is something which applied statistics and economics really started taking off during the 1930s onwards. You could go to these publications and you could down, I mean, you could photocopy them or just like jot it down and start doing your analysis. So that's when we saw the growth in this type of analysis. I think that in the current day and age, the reason why we're seeing them more commonly is again due to social media. Well, social media and just there's a lot more data available, which you can easily download. And then the other point is that a lot of people don't seem to challenge the idea behind the trend. Some people do. But if I want to prove my point, I'll just go and get my data. I'll cut it to a point where it suits my message. Then I'll post it on my social media platform, which will then be reshared. So I think that there are couple of confluences out there. One is that it's easier to get data. The other is just easier to manipulate and share the data. And there's an automatic kind of gut reaction. Well, if this person's showing me this trend, it's got to be true.
0: Yeah. And I think we see as academic disciplines have really become very siloed, you know, there was a traditional liberal arts education that people used to get where you would take a variety of different subjects so you wouldn't just be taking economics maybe you'd also be taking political science or history or philosophy you know these other things that would give you context to what you're learning in, in any given subject and now we don't do that to the same extent and i do think you know in in the masters of public service program students have to take a bunch of different kinds of classes they have to take politics classes they have to take economics classes they have to take communication classes where they're learning about language and re- rhetoric you know i think to a certain extent we have as you say there's a data problem we have so much information and there isn't a lot of time, even though there are calls, to be more conscientious about how we're using that information and about some of the problematic ways that information can be used. I think there, there are still a lot of gaps in terms of people having the right kind of education to allow them to engage effectively with with that information. So, you know, is there maybe is this an education problem that we we've done a good job of sorting undergraduates into their majors, but maybe we've gone too far that do we need to go back to giving people a more well rounded education that also involves engaging with the humanities or with social sciences, if that's not your field.
1: I'm a big advocate of that. Honestly, I'm in absolute agreement. I I think because we have become a data-driven society, precisely for your reasons. There is so much fake news and so much false discourse, and people seem to have forgotten the art of fact-based debates and discussions, which is driven by empirical observations and data. And it could be because of what you said, because we seem to be siloed. But... Those are the reasons which I would really advocate for a returning to our roots. If, for instance, a student wants to be in a faculty of arts and they're interested in social science and humanities, and if you really think about it, how much do uh, grade 12 students know if they really wanna take sociology or economics or philosophy? They don't know. I mean, maybe they could just go by what jobs are available, but not truly in differences in the disciplines that's only touched upon in a rudimentary fashion in high school. So if you that type of those type of options in the first year, first year and a half, then students could specialize. I think that'd be great. But I'd honestly include a course on data understanding, right? Don't even call it statistics. Okay. What are data and data understanding? Something of that sort. Um, I include that as being mandatory training in all universities.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. The word statistics frightens people so much. But, you know, if you framed it in terms of like understanding big data, or, you know, as you said, data management, it rhetorically does something else to people. A lot to think about in terms of whether or not we can even keep using trends, you know, are trends tarnished? Are we, are we, should we be frightened of, of trends? Should we be suspicious of them? You know, given that so many of us are not in a position to be able to really validate the trends that we are being inundated with. Are trends still useful in terms of communicating to publics? Or are they just irreparably dangerous?
1: No, I think that trends are vital. They're a vital part in our societal discourse. And I think the key thing is trying to understand what their limits are and how they can be used But I think that, especially in today's society, where you have facts being uh, manipulated and people just not accepting something, if you throw away data, then there's really nothing which is a platform. I think data are a platform for facts, which becomes knowledge. And that leads to a more efficient and a more useful and all-encompassing discourse between different segments of society. So, I'd argue the exact opposite that we need to know, understand how do we use data properly or kind of educate people on how it should be used, but really push trends and data in terms of conversations. I think that is key. And never making sure that when you look at statistics, people never question public statistics. I don't think I've seen a lot about that, a lot of that. People may not like government. But when you have standalone statistical agencies, I still haven't seen people say, well, that's fake data. It's created by the government. I haven't seen that. Um, I've seen differences in how the data are interpreted. And so another great anecdote is that when you looked at the American presidential campaign, you kept hearing the news from the Trump team that look at our economy before the pandemic. It was phenomenal. It was the fastest growing economy with huge spikes in employment rates. But if you look at that trend, that trend actually started during former President Obama's uh, second tenure towards the end of his first one. It was a clear trend. There is no dispute about the statistics. The dispute is where the trend began and ended. And for, of course, for people who support President Trump, the trend began during his first day in office. <laughs> and for people who supported President Obama, uh, that trend started during his tenure. So I think that's what the critical point is.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been very enlightening hearing all of the ins and outs of trends.
1: Great. No, my pleasure.
0: That is my conversation with Dr. Anindya Sen, professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Waterloo and the director of the Master of Public Service program. My conversation with Professor Sen sent me back to thinking about some of the experiences that I've had in the classroom recently. And in fact, one of the truly unsettling experiences that I regularly have as a university instructor is the not infrequent situation of standing before a classroom, full of undergraduates, speaking at length about some topic, while being faced with very few people who are writing down the things that I am saying. And for those who attended university prior to the year 2000, it may come as a shock to hear that students do not actually write down notes anymore. Or at least, that's what I thought was happening when I was standing at the front of the room looking out over my class. So this led me to think that maybe I should be asking undergraduates, what's happening? How are they deciding what to write down and what not to? Do they have to write anything down? They have access to an infinite supply of information. It's at their fingertips at all times. Has it changed how they think about knowledge and information and the need to memorize? So I caught up with four undergraduate students from the University of Waterloo to find out how they take notes, and how they think about the information that they're writing down, and how do they plan to use that information if they do write it down.
2: Hi, my name is Natasha. I'm in my fourth year at the University of Waterloo, and I study economics and business.
3: My name is Vicky, and I'm a third-year student at the University of Waterloo, and I'm studying mathematical economics.
4: Hi, my name is Lydia, and I'm a second-year student at the University of Waterloo, and I study business and speech communication.
5: Hi, I'm Isabel. I'm a first-year arts student at the University of Waterloo, planning to double major in gender and social justice and speech communication.
2: I usually take notes with the final exam or the midterm in mind most of the things we're tested on are definitions or concepts. So your definitions are rote memory. They're usually on slides or on textbooks. Um, So writing that down for the first time in class and then reviewing your notes after class and then reviewing it right before the midterm helps you remember it. So my purpose, I guess, in note taking is, is to remember what I need to know for the final.
4: So my note taking approach like usually revolves around what kind of assessments are in the class. If there's going to be like exams, then I will write notes throughout the semester. If this course only has essays and no exams in it, then I probably won't write notes because I can just refer back to the lecture content later on.
3: So for me, it really depends on the course I'm taking. Some are very uh, conceptual and some are like mathematics where the teacher writes on some sort of whiteboard. I usually copy down so I can follow along. Whereas um, if there's courses about like conceptual or theory courses and they have PowerPoint slides, then I usually just follow along with that.
5: Since I started university in the pandemic and everything's been online, I feel like that impacts a little bit how I take notes, because I know that I can always go back and access all of the PowerPoints afterwards if I do need to. But I tend to take notes from the main points on the PowerPoint, or that were mentioned when the prof is talking about the content, if there was something that wasn't in the PowerPoint, but that seems like it was stressed a lot and would be important. But Sometimes I'm a little more flexible and don't write everything down because I know that if I really need to, I can go back and look over it again.
4: I will only handwrite notes. I just don't enjoy typing out notes. And I feel like I don't retain anything when I type out notes. I prefer to handwrite everything, but I do find that when I am writing notes that I'm really not absorbing the information. So I do prefer to just sit and listen if I can.
2: So I take notes. Um, exclusively by hand in class then I type them up afterwards because I have terrible handwriting.
5: Historically, I have always written notes by hand. Anyways, it helps me remember what's happening and retain the information, though I do kind of understand what Lydia is saying. I also sometimes find that if I try and write down too much stuff at once, I kind of zone out and forget to keep listening when I'm trying to finish what I was writing about the last point.
2: I would say where I've had to take the most notes have been a couple speech calm classes I've taken where they don't use a PowerPoint and the information you receive is simply in lecture. And I find my difficulty with taking notes there is I think I should put everything in my notes and I don't have the trust in myself to know that I'll remember that if I just write down a concept, I'll remember what was said because I was learning in that class. So I think just that that's something, um, I guess, not completely note taking, but just remembering the concepts and knowing that notes don't have to encompass everything, even if you can't look it up later.
5: Yeah, I think I don't have a ton of classes that are necessarily as note taking heavy. A lot of the content that I have is more idea focused, but there's definitely a few where there are some dates and names that I'm expected to remember. And it's hard sometimes to going through, remember to write those down because they don't stick out to me necessarily as the most important thing if I'm looking for what the ideas are. So sometimes I find that that's a little bit tricky to make sure that I'm focusing on what the prof is looking for on the tests, not what I personally think is the most valuable information and most potentially applicable to my studies.
3: Yeah, I also find that math classes are um, the most note taking focus and um, professors would usually just keep writing on and like, um, because there's a, a limited amount of chalkboard they would have to erase the whole board and I would have to copy it down quickly. And um, sometimes because I'm rushing to take all the notes down, I I find myself not being able to comprehend everything. So I usually review my notes afterwards once I've copied them all down.
2: When you can explain something to another person, it becomes part of your intuition. uh, When you're discussing something versus writing it down, It, it feels like you're just copying it down for review later, so then you can discuss it later.
4: Yes, I'm also definitely the same way, whereas discussion is like the best thing for me, especially if we're discussing how a concept or a problem kind of applies to the real world or real life. Like that's the best way for me to understand something.
5: I am more confident if I discuss it with others, especially if I can explain it to someone else, particularly if they haven't also studied the concept at all and don't know what I'm talking about, because if I feel like I can thoroughly explain it to them so that they can then fully understand the concept, I know that I get it. Writing does also help me remember things and means that I have something to look back to later, but definitely discussing it is the most useful strategy if I could only choose one.
3: Oh, I also agree. I believe writing it down is just good for memory, but if you discuss it with someone else, you're able to understand how to apply it to like certain problems or um, understand how others uh, would uh, solve uh, that uh, same problem, but in a different way.
4: And I think the only thing that's changed since I've got to university is that I've realized that I don't have a lot of free time so that I, I won't write notes for courses that I really don't think I'm going to look at them again or use them, so I think i've just been more sparse with my note taking and made sure that I record more important stuff instead of just copying down everything.
2: I think I have gotten better and better at note taking as I go through university um, i'm a note taker for accessibility services so it's it's been very helpful to go to class. Um, I take my quick notes and then type up all of my notes in a way that someone else can understand them, uh, and I found that extremely helpful because it's almost like explaining to someone else what I've learned. I look back at my notes all the time from previous and prerequisite courses, so I guess there is value to it, so.
4: <laughs> if you do have an essay course, don't write the notes. <laughs> Not <Nah. laughs> Any course that has exams, write the notes. <laughs> Make sure your notes are what makes sense for you. Notes are a very important part of learning, and I think it helps a lot, especially when it comes to testing. So just because you don't like writing notes, you probably should still.
0: (laughs) So it turns out my perception was wrong. It isn't true that students don't take notes anymore, or at least it isn't the case with the students that I spoke to. So I had just imagined that something was a trend because it looked that way from my vantage point. And while my little four person sample of admittedly avid note takers isn't likely to be representative of the wider student population, they did provide insights into some aspects of learning that I hadn't really considered before. They are strategic about what they write down and they can be because information exists online in textbooks and in PowerPoint slides, they can go back and look it up. So there are things that they simply don't need To have access to in written notes or that they don't need to have ready for instant recall in their heads. They also perceived that sometimes writing notes actually got in the way of thinking and learning. They needed time to sit back and listen or to discuss what they were learning with their peers. So if we want our students to be flexible, critical, and creative thinkers, we can't just fill their classes and their minds with constant facts for memorization. And while it makes sense to me that students would have this nuanced sense of how to engage with knowledge and information, after all, they are actively engaged in high stakes learning every day, but what about the rest of us? How are we coping with knowledge, expertise, and information in our daily lives? Join me for my next episode for a deep dive into knowing and expertise. This has been an episode of Unsettling Trends. It's produced by Pop Culture Lab with research and production assistance from Maddie Taylor. And of course I'm your host, Danielle DeVoe. Talk to you soon.